We need to unify our configuration file formats. We need to pick one and a single library for accessing it. You need to be able to pretty much drive the box around using a single way of doing it. Welcome to BSD Talk number 247. It's Saturday, November 15, 2014. Well, I'm back from Meet BSD California, and so probably the next couple podcasts will be from some of the talks that they gave there. Just as a reminder, I, I normally don't um, put the audio of the talks up unless they generally seem okay without video or at least being able to see the slides. So not every uh, not every talk that I recorded would go up here, but I do think that they're going to be doing some video. I know some people were taking video of the talk, so hopefully those will be up soon. But anyway, here is a talk from Jordan Hubbard. All right. So anyway, I'm uh, Jordan Hubbard, and uh, I'm reprising a slightly edited version of the talk I gave at, uh, at uh, EuroBSDCon. So if you were there and you are bored, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, this is actually a sucky title for a talk because it's, you know, suggests that I somehow know what's going to happen in the next 10 years, uh, much less the next 20 years, and I have no clue. But I'm going to, I'm going to try and talk about some trends and things that uh, have been going on uh, in the last, you know, five or six years that I think are informing where we're going to go over the next 10. So, Sorry. yeah. Uh, how about that? Okay, there we go. Can you turn the game up at all? Yes? No? I don't really want to eat. Okay, I'm going to eat the microphone. All right. So, but uh, let's talk about, to put this in context, kind of where we came from a little bit here. Uh, And I think this date here is kind of interesting because you see uh, an email (coughs) from my uh, personal machine uh, in Ireland dated November 2nd, uh, 1451. This, of course, is in GMT. So the geeks among you will say, well, wait a minute, let's do the math, because we're in GMT minus 7, right? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Forget it. It's all right. Uh, in fact, you see here the adjusted uh, GMT date is actually the first of them, November 1993. So that was the first release of FreeBSD 1.0. And so we are now 21 years old today. But just to be sure, wait till tomorrow. Because, you know, time zones. So our first distribution media was obviously the punch card. Uh, okay, I am lying. This is our actual distribution media, the 1.2-inch floppy. And the reason why this is kind of interesting and relevant is a lot of you will remember that that's what the uh, distributions used to look like, chunked up into these little 230K files, or 235K according to that listing, uh, and why was that size chosen, you might ask? Well, because that was the uh, best divisor into either 1.2 megabytes or 1.44 megabytes, which was the floppy distribution formats of choice at the time. And um, this meme will continue to repeat throughout my talk, where we talk about sort of things from the past affecting things in the present. This was our ports collection. That's the entire ports collection. <laughs> Back when it was manageable. So, uh, but you know, we had Bash on there. 
kidding. They had a bug in it. <laughs> and this was this is not my actual FreeBSD uh, build machine. I don't have any pictures of that left. That machine has been scrapped a long time ago. But uh, it looked something similar to that. And I, I paid, uh, I remember buying the first one gigabyte hard drive and it cost me $1,600 to do builds. It was a good thing I was a consultant. Um, and of course it was a DX2 486, the entire 50 megahertz. And that was, that was uh, like cutting edge for the time. My laptop, my, this is my dream laptop. Here I am in Japan with uh, Warner. And uh, you notice we look a little different today. Uh, that's, and that's a Sony Vaio. That was, that was the premier laptop that you could, you could want. And it, of course, shipped with Windows by default. Uh, but of course, yes. <laughs> we'll get to that. This was our very first conference. Uh, as you can see, some things have not changed. Uh, there's Kirk with, uh, with a, a pitcher of beer uh, and a very pleased looking expression on his face. And there's David O'Brien in the back with a very pleased expression on his face and two pitchers of beer. Plus a beer. Uh, and I think that might be Doug White in the foreground. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, yeah, that was in 1999. Was it? Oh, that's not Doug White. I have no idea who that is. But he's hoisting an empty picture, so I don't know quite what he's trying to achieve. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, the Berkeley Radisson, uh, right on the waterfront there. Uh, the water wasn't working that morning, so we were all funky, and it was really it was, it was good times. Um, so 20 years ago, the commercial uh, world was also very different. Uh, pretty much our number one you know, poster child for FreeBSD, at least, was the ISP. And uh, you know, big ones, small ones, medium-sized ones, those were our bread and butter. Um, a lot of people were also building uh, small you know, sort of Soho web servers and routers, uh, you know, get a couple of ISA NICs, and boom, you had yourself a firewall. Uh, and you know, very DIY. You, you just kind of uh, piece these bits together and uh, did your best. And um, obviously, we did have a couple of large poster children, and some at least one of which we still have today, which is Yahoo. We also had Hotmail, but we were an embarrassment to them, and they got rid of us as soon as they possibly could. Um, and then, of course, you had a lot of uh, desktop machines that developers just put together for themselves to to do software development. And uh, that the one key characteristic of this time was that the majority of FreeBSD machines were physical PCs and they ran off of AC. So yeah, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, it was a fairly overt role for FreeBSD and it was really clear that you were running FreeBSD when you were in fact running it. So that brings us to the present day. Uh, that drive there is 64 times bigger than the thing I paid $1,600 for uh, 21 years ago which just still astounds me. You can stick it on your keychain and carry it around. That there, uh, for about 50 bucks with the storage card, is far more powerful than my first 486DX2. And, uh, yeah, of course, it's still considered too slow now because we do a lot more stuff and Emacs has gotten bigger, but still, <laughs> still, that's a pretty impressive thing. And what I find really, really neat about that and kind of a what I hope is a harbinger of things to come is that 
Now these machines, uh, this class of machine, is re is within the reach of people without much money. And so I hope that we're going to see a lot more developing countries buying these things, sticking a real Unix distribution on uh, their thing, whether it's Linux or BSD. Uh, they have far more to work with than we ever did. So, yes, I got it back. It's right here. Um, but one key difference, uh, other than the fact that it's got 16 gigs of memory and a processor that's you know, many, many times more powerful than anything that ever uh, shipped in a VIO, uh, is that it's got BSD in it instead of Windows. And I know, uh, you know some folks think OS X is not really BSD. Well, yeah, it is a hybrid of a lot of different technologies, but there are terminal windows by, you know, in the default install, and, and you can use it as a, a Unix development device. So that, I think, is, is pretty interesting and completely contrary to what everybody predicted 20 years ago. The, the prediction 20 years ago is that Windows would win completely and utterly, and you would never see Unix on a mainstream device ever. Ha. <laughs> Other things that have changed, obviously from 1.0, we're now up to 10.1, which is kind of symmetrical <laughs> if, you, if you look backwards. Uh, there are over 24,000 ports there were 70 in that first screenshot I showed you. And there are hundreds of committers, uh, even more evenly spread out now between academia and commercial. Uh, I think I can say safely that in the very beginning days of FreeBSD, most folks were from academia. There were a few commercial interests here and there, but they were kind of the weird people. Uh, now the weirdos have taken over, and it's largely commercial, which is actually good. Um, we have sources of long-term funding, uh, a few of us, myself included, tried to, to make a go of uh, creating sort of, you know, pseudo-legitimate enterprises around FreeBSD. I totally screwed it up. Justin did a really nice job uh, with the foundation, by contrast. And, uh, and this, is, this is pretty awesome now because now you can start funding the, uh, the, the sort of the staff positions and the, the, the grunt work, the things that nobody really wants to do too much. Uh, or if you have some you know, wild-ass experiment that somebody is really talented and wants to do but doesn't have the resources, you can fund those sorts of things. Um, but what's most interesting is that the commercial interests and the overall market have changed almost completely from 20 years ago. And one of the reasons is this guy. And the, 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 the GPL experience really has turned into kind of this weird, uh, you know, judo thing where everyone thought that they were making this kind of deal and then they got flipped on their backs by the GPL v3. Uh, and it's actually driven a lot more commercial interest in our direction because uh, the GPL v3 is scary. It is a very scary thing. Uh, it hasn't completely taken over. Uh, you know, Linus Torvalds has quite famously refused to adopt it for uh, you know, a lot of good reasons. But uh, it's made a lot of uh, legal departments and a lot of uh, engineering departments give BSD a really strong second look. So we have him, St. Stallman, to thank for that. <laughs> Sorry, RMS, but you did it. Anyway, um, so the other thing that's interesting is that now BSD, free BSD, any flavor of BSD is being kind of put more under the covers. It's, it is a, just an implementation detail. So routers, load balancers, security monitoring devices, file servers, uh, software appliances, PFSense, FreeNAS, um, they, they're actually rebranding it. They're calling it something else, like PFSense or FreeNAS. And 
it's that thing that has an identity. It isn't FreeBSD so much. Uh, as you'll hear later on today, it's even the base operating system for a popular gaming console. Um, and of course, the embedded market is is exploding. So the takeaway there is that FreeBSD is now more covert. It's uh, you don't necessarily know you're even running it anymore. So, kind of to riff on that, the biggest Unix deployments we have now are phones by sheer numbers, uh, whether it's Android or, or an iPhone. Uh, tablets, obviously. Wristwatches, someday soon, uh, which is, to me, bizarre. I, I can never imagine I'd run BSD on a wristwatch. That's really, really flipping cool, but it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's interesting development. Uh, and obviously, all these things are kind of integrated together. They talk to each other, so there's a lot more interesting challenges in integration there. And, uh, of course, you have BSD in your cables. So, um, what? Uh, yeah, actually, it turns out a lot of cables now at each of the ends is a little ARM processor. And it runs a complete software stack. Why? Because it's easier. It's just e if you're doing video transcoding in the cable or you're doing DRM enforcement or something clever like that, once you start pulling on all the various libraries that you need to do those things, you very quickly realize, well, I could either create a little RTOS and emulate all the user land bits that I need to support all these libraries and all this code that I've already got written, or I could just put Unix in there. So, uh, like I say, when I say ubiquitous, you don't even realize how ubiquitous. So, just switch gears for a minute to the enterprise, What's also kind of been uh, a fascinating observation over the 20 years is this whole bring your own device movement has completely transformed the enterprise. And it's completely changed the way the IT departments work. Uh, 10 years ago, if you brought your own device and you said, hey, I want to hook this to the corporate network, they would say, security! And then you know, you'd be escorted out of the building or at least you know, have HR talk to you very sternly. Now, of course, since the CEO is one of the people bringing in the device, it has to work now. It has to interoperate with us. So all those phones and tablets, uh, they're really forcing uh, a play that never happened before. Again, if it was if it was Windows, that was good enough. Uh, but now we're 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 getting in there in, in, in routes that nobody predicted. Uh, the other interesting thing, of course, is that cloud computing has just about killed uh, the small data center. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, small companies that used to build their own infrastructure just don't even bother. They just rent it. Um, and what's also interesting in, in my third bullet here is uh, I had a, a, one of my old fart friends uh, talking to me about how he had just joined this San Francisco startup, and he was completely amazed by the fact that the founders just sat in the coffee shop on their laptops, and they would commit some code, and they'd hit save, and then all this automation would kick off and uh, VMs would be spun up in the cloud and regression tests would start running and at some point a staging server would have the, the bits and they'd get a little notification and they'd go to the staging server and they'd play with it and testers would mess with it for a little while and then they'd say, yep, it's good. Or they'd do A-B testing and it would just keep, you know, run on its merry way and some percentage of the, of the user base would be exposed to the new version. The automation would see whether they were crashing or happy or reaching their destination on the website. And all of this would happen with, you know, up to several hundred machines at the very peak. Not to mention the dozens that were actually running the production versions. And these two guys in the coffee shop are running all of it. And they're all doing it via Puppet or Chef or, or SaltStack or something. And that's... Uh, 
he, he, he was very dubious when he, when he was first introduced to this and after about uh, you know three or four hours of watching how it all worked he said wow you know, I, I never could have imagined something like that when I first started doing this 30 years ago so obviously virtualization is the other huge thing that has changed and uh, I think it's, it really is worth saying that most OS deployments the overt ones not the covert ones running in your phone or your cables uh, are they're not physical if, they're, if, you, if you kind of noses for all the BSD machines out there I'm sure a very small percentage would actually be physical machines and if you look at the automation tools that are used for, for administering these big VM clusters they do everything possible to erase the host personality they don't like all those configuration files that essentially make the host unique they try and put all that information somewhere else in some database and then provision hundreds of machines at once or thousands even. So that's really changing the game in terms of you know how unique you even want a host to be. Um, and of course, because all this stuff is being pushed by automation, it's not humans editing RC comp files anymore or dot files. It's, it's automation. So this really calls us to you know, makes me question at least what is an operating system anymore? And the best answer I can come up with is it's a set of Lego blocks. It's just uh, it's just a bunch of pieces that people put together in various interesting ways to create solutions, uh, either overt or covert. What everyone wants to work on is something more like that, something that's that's visibly and obviously cool. So, what this means to me for this room is that we have to change our definition of what's cool. We have to enjoy the process of making Lego blocks because that's essentially what people want. They, and they, they want the wet Lego blocks to be more flexible and to be more universal and more standardized so they can reshuffle the components around and make really tiny versions of an operating system to fit into a cable or slightly larger ones to fit into a wristwatch or slightly larger ones, again, to fit into a phone or a tablet. As the, as the hardware's capabilities kind of, kind of staircases up, they want to be able to easily create a solution for that particular niche. And that niche is going to be constantly changing. So, you know, the, the, the challenge I put out to all of you is that we need to become much more interested in crafting, you know, the, the fundamental bits and, and looking at the roles that, that the operating systems are now playing in our lives. So the other, other interesting things about mobile is that um, you know, remember I said earlier that at 20 years ago or 21 years ago, the majority of, of FreeBSD machines were plugged into to AC power. That is not true anymore. The majority of FreeBSD machines are DC, uh, and they're running off of a battery. They are talking to cables. Wires are disappearing. They are uh, hugely sensitive now to power consumption and interfaces that come and go. That I think there are now four or five different radios in an in a iPhone these days. I mean, the near-field communication stuff is just the newest, but there's Bluetooth, there's Wi-Fi, there's cellular radios. All of those things are dynamic. Routes are flapping all the time. Connections are coming and going. And that really uh, really screws with your assumptions in terms of, of con connection persistence and, and just even how the, how the host is configured from any given uh, point in time. So to make that work, you need a lot more telemetry information from the devices. You need a lot more high-level debugging tools. You're not going to get a shell prompt on a phone as it's tra traveling across the United States. But you might, but only for very brief windows of time. What's also kind of interesting is looking at our competition a little bit. 
if you look at Ubuntu's website, uh, not that many of you do, but uh, you'll notice that uh, cloud is the very first thing on there. Then server, whatever that means to them, then desktop, then phone, then tablet, and TV, and of course looking at the, the bigger thing and getting down from the menu bar, they're all about ready for smartphones, number one for cloud. Uh, so, and obviously I don't even know what Juju is. I assume it's some sort of single plane of, pane of glass management interface. But the Linux folks are already moving this way. Uh, as I've said before, they're not really skating to where the puck is going, but they saw it go past, and they're trying to catch up to it. And I think that's actually pretty smart of them. They're not focusing on the challenges of 20 years ago. They're trying to get ahead. So what this means to the BSD community is that we really need to be open to, to some fundamentally new approaches to solving sort of these classic problems. Uh, we also need to be willing to, to call uh, ruthlessly, if necessary, stuff that's just legacy, things like those 235K files in a distribution because of floppies. Right? Anything that's, that's ruthlessly legacy, we need to ruthlessly call. And I, I just think that's the only way you can evolve. You have to get rid of uh, you know, some of the, the uh, obsolete DNA. Um, I also think that rather than doing all this ourselves, we need to be willing to, to shamelessly uh, borrow other technologies that, that appear to be working well. We don't have to do it all ourselves. We can, we can leverage open source and some of the work of all these different corporations who are represented in this room to, to make the fundamentals better and we don't have to write it all from scratch. Um, and, and finally, I think, and this is really vital, we need to f pick some new big picture challenges. You know, I call this climbing the mountain, the mountaineering expedition. Having one of these things, having an expedition, focuses your efforts. It gives everybody a visible goal. We are going up there, and it's going to be hard, and a few of us will die along the way, but it will be exciting, and it will be an adventure. Um, 21 years ago, we were nothing, and we wanted to be in the server room. We wanted to be the back office solution of choice. And that was our mountain. And we had to do a lot of things. We had to support a lot of devices. We had to be far more reliable than we were when we started to climb that mountain. But it was a mountain, and we were all you know, more or less committed to that destination. Now it's getting a little bit more difficult. There are, there are multiple mountains. But we have to pick at least a, a, a small handful of them and agree that that's where we're all going. Because if it's just a hobbyist activity and people are just hacking for the sheer fun of it, I don't know that that focuses the next generation of engineers. I mean, there are folks in this room who were in high school when uh, I and other people started FreeBSD, and we mentored them, and you know they were promising, and they were eager, and they were enthusiastic, and now they're the project leaders. And I think that's awesome. But what do the next generation, what do the next high school students want to do, right? To attract those people, you need a sexy goal or a series of sexy goals. So to stop waving my hands a little bit and, and get more specific for this room, you know, one of the things I talked about in, in terms of provisioning machines automatically and, and being more Lego-like uh, is we need to unify our configuration file formats. We need to pick one and a single library for accessing it, you need to be able to pretty much drive the box around using a single way of doing it. Because if, as long as there are five or ten, and there's probably more than that on your average FreeBSD box or BSD box in general, it becomes 
so annoyingly hard that everybody is just going to craft their own collection of pearl code that just goes and stomps on all these things and impedance matches between their idealized view of configuration management and yours. And that sucks because there's no unity there. There's, there's, there's no, uh, no collaboration around what it really should look like. So yeah, I've been watching the debates for years. It should be YAML. It should be XML. No, XML sucks. It should be JSON. No, what are you talking about? You know, so, uh, just agree on the API, maybe. Agree on the library and uh, have it eat a couple of formats, but ultimately, you're probably going to need to settle on just one and accept that it's good enough, and then you're going to need to go back and retrofit all the existing tools that are reading their private files out of slash Etsy in some weird ad hoc contrived format. And guess what? You, what you'll also get with this is for the first time, there'll be a set of APIs in libc for reading and writing configuration data, and the next tool won't have to write its own, because that's what, exactly what you have to do today. If I write a tool from scratch right now, and I say, where's my API for doing preferences, everyone will just look at me blankly. And so, you know, here's a working example. Uh, again, it's XML. I don't care. If everything in iOS and OS X are unified behind the XML plist DTD, and everything has been made to speak that thing through the, the preferences APIs, whether it's system preferences, whether it's per application preferences, user preferences, it doesn't matter. It all goes through that mechanism, and guess what? It works. So another thing that comes up is we need to be more asynchronous. We need to be able to deal with things like radios coming and going, events happening that are outside of our control. Back in you know the 70s and 80s, nobody unplugged the VAX. The VAX never had to leave AC. If it did, really bad things happened, and university administrators descended upon you with great wrath, and you never did that ever again. Well, today, people unplug devices all the time. They go between battery and AC and back and forth and back and forth. That's an event. The, the Wi-Fi leaving and the cellular modem coming up is another event. I, I could sit here for three hours talking about all the diverse events that you can, that you can deal with. The fact is, they're, they're, they're what are we, we're dealing with today. And so, um, you know, even your host name can change. That really messes with people's heads. Why would my host name change? Because you're on a bonjour network and they go and all fight for the name Foo, and now it's Foo 1, Foo 2, Foo 3, Foo 4, they'll sort it out. But if you think your machine is named Foo, you should go look again. So, you know, there's that. And then finally, and, and this one really, really pees me a lot because I see so many examples of this done so badly. People cache information all the time that they have no idea how to invalidate. And, you know, there's some axiom in computer science. Never cache anything you can't invalidate. Well, people forgot that one because they do it all the freaking time. And so you end up with a lot of Unix systems where, hey, I went and I changed my Active Directory thing and... <laughs> Uh, my permissions are still wrong. My ownerships are still, oh, yeah, well, it's because we kept a cache of that because it's really kind of slow to query the Active Directory server. Do you have any notification for invalid? No, no. Just go push this button. Go run this command, right? It's just, it's just stupid. Um, so, again, we need a centralized mechanism for dealing with that. And because I spent 12 years at Apple, I'm going to keep using Apple examples. Sorry. Uh, you know, this is NotifyD. And you know, we probably spent three or four weeks just debating what the API should look like. And then once we come up with a way of getting every possible thing that needed notification to work, then we designed the tools and we designed the daemon. 
Uh, and if you, you know, if you send a SIGUSER1 to NotifyD on a Mac, you'll see that uh, there's a huge number of things subscribing to it. Uh, in fact, one of the biggest subscriptions is the time zone variable, com.apple.system.timezone. And that came about because we saw that libc was checking Etsy local time, statting it to see if somebody had changed their time zone because they're traveling, and it was doing it hundreds of times a second. Uh, because all these different applications, every time I'd spin up a, a, a libc routine, they'd say, oh, what time zone am I in? That was stupid, right? But again, there was no way to, to watch it or to, to invalidate a special libc cache of time zone information. So we came up with a little shared memory semaphore thing, and that's one of the notifications you, you can subscribe to. You can subscribe to your host name. Has it changed? So again, it's really easy to do. We should do it. And finally, one of my favorite topics is demon wrangling. Uh, Devin's not going to agree with anything I'm about to say, but um, basically, you know, I, I remember con uh, committing. I think the first rc.conf file. It seemed like a really good idea at the time. Lots of knobs. We'll put a bunch of uh, things into a directory, and they can look at the knobs, and uh, it'll be awesome. Uh, and it was better than what we had. Basically, you'd hack everything into etcrc or rc.local. Uh, up until, and there were no knobs to configure any of the things in there. But all we've done is, is you know, there's, there's an old saying, uh, you, you can't polish a turd, but you can paint it. And all we've done is paint it a number of times. And we've put, you know, quite some quite colorful paint on it from time to time, and we've, we've abstracted it out into user local and other side directories where you might want to put other uh, configuration files. But the real fundamental problem with this approach is that dependencies are explicit. You have to know what depends on what, and that becomes really rapidly intractable. Uh, and it's static. You declare that set of dependencies once, but things can't kind of check in later and say, hey, I just arrived, I'm, I was installed five minutes ago, I depend on these things. Start me up when those things happen, or don't start me until this other thing happens. It's r really hard to do that. Again, you can do it manually, you can do service, blah, start, and you, you, can, you can do anything manually. The question is, do you really want to? <coughs> so, I'm you know, trying not to suggest LaunchD, but uh, you know, even the Linux diehards, they've got systemd, they've had their huge debates about it, they seem to have mostly died down. But the, the fundamental concept behind both, even if you were to come up with FreeBSDD and say that that was far better, I'd be totally cool with it as long as you followed the same basic outlines, which is check in, use IPC or timers or hardware events to start things and have everything completely asynchronous. Have nothing depend explicitly on anything else. Just let the fact that I asked you for something cause you to start. And then if no one's asked you for a while, I can shoot you again. And that kind of meta layer of demon wrangling turns out to be incredibly important for power consumption because a lot of people write crappy code that just starts up and then sits around doing stupid things frequently. Well, not even frequently. Say, I only check once a second. Don't look at me. Yeah, well, there are 50 of you. Right? So now it's 50 hertz worth of stuff happening, and my battery is going Plus, I have no way of even monitoring you because you all started up via some ad hoc mechanism, so I can't even really tell that's why my battery is doing that. But if they're all started by a common agent, it can, it can detect stupidity, and it can, it can shoot you down or refuse to start you anymore. Or, you know, you know, LaunchD started because we just looked at two different service starting mechanisms 
the Mach 1 for starting things based on Mach IPC and INETD based on starting things on uh, other IPC, and we said, we have to double register things that listen on both. And oh, and some people start that via cron. Ah, now we have to have a, some sort of semaphore check to see, am I already running? Did someone start me already via some of these other mechanisms? We had you know, triple and quadruple entry bookkeeping for some things that could be started in a variety of ways. And we said, this is insane. Let's just merge it all together. And then at some point we looked at init and said, oh, there's that TTTYs. We forgot about that. And just went in there, and now all the USB stuff and Bluetooth stuff and everything is all plugged into the same mechanism, and there's one way of doing it. So I, I cannot speak highly enough to how much that improves your life. I mentioned this before, but telemetry and remote debugging are huge. You cannot live in the mobile space without these things, period. And so now, I'm not saying that every FreeBSD device should send email or packets to freebsd.org and declare its existence. Uh, as I say, the NSA don't need our help. They already do this upstream. They have better aggregation points than freebsd.org. But what we do need is we do need at least some API and some daemon that you can register uh, information with. It's better than syslog, because syslog is not really telemetry. That's more something happened and maybe you care, maybe you don't. Um, and, of course, debugging is, is hard on uh, mobile devices. And, uh, you know, one of the things I really loved, uh, uh, still love about the Mac is that if it panics and I've got the right flag set, I can debug it over IP. I can just connect to it remotely from wherever I happen to be. I can set up servers that do nothing but go and connect to one for me and scrape it of all the important information and stick it into a bug report. And I can automate all of that stuff if I don't have to rely on physical connectivity of some other sort, like Serial or, well, Thunderbolt is dead now, but you know, that was kind of also a, a, a very popular option because you could do DMA over it. Again, if it's, if it's in your lab and it's under your physical custody, you can do uh, some, some neat things. Hell, you can JTAG debug your device if it's under your physical custody, but it doesn't tend to be the case in the field. People are running the software in scenarios where the best they can give you is an IP address. <coughs> Uh, guess what, on Wi-Fi? Yeah, not even that. But it's better than nothing. So another thing that, that, that keeps coming up in the mailing list is if we're going to go in the mobile space, what are the reference platforms? Right? Back with the PC, it was pretty easy. we just get a 386 or better, so anything with an MMU and a whopping 512 megs of memory, and you are a FreeBSD developer. And uh, it, was, it was pretty straightforward. I'm not, honestly, this is where I'm at sea. I'm not sure what the reference tablet is going to look like. You can go to, to Shanghai today and buy a, a usable tablet for like 20 bucks. I know people who go over there and buy them as stocking stuffers and then come back and hand them out to uh, poor children who don't know what they're getting. Um, but, you know, they are pretty cheap. Um, I'm sure there are phones out there that are in the same price bracket. Maybe the cheapest won't be the best target. In fact, I can pretty much guess by looking at this town that crowd that it won't be because they'll be too crappy but something in the middle sort of you know the beagle bone black of the of the mobile or or, or, or tablet space uh, I think would be a very interesting thing to determine and then get a certain number of them and start working on them so that we can actually collaborate because right now it's a tower of Babel in that space you want to pick a platform uh, good luck there's so many to choose from um, and, and where I think this is really 
pertinent is that having this day, this hardware that people actually use and carry around and, and, and try to live on uh, focuses your efforts wonderfully because you very quickly realize how much your life sucks now. And you know, I, I speak from personal experience, right? We went through some of the first mobile devices with Unix on them and there were a lot of challenges that had to be overcome. But you won't even know what those challenges are until you're trying to trying to address them. So as I say, real hardware forces you to think about the software stack, forces you to think about debugging, telemetry, the demons that run on it, how you're going to make battery life not suck, there are kernel changes involved, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that rolls out of that. And you know, we can all look at this slide and go, man, Jordan, this sounds really hard, and how the hell are we going to do that? And yeah, let's go back to hacking on rc.d. Um, the, the penalty for not grappling with this is that we'll be left behind, because this, this, that's just where the puck is going. Every, you know, these, these mobile devices are not only our future, but are our present. So, just to summarize all of it, we need to get more Lego-like, we need to embrace the notion of being Lego-like and, and look at the fundamental building blocks and how they're aggregated in different ways. Uh, I think you know the fundamental uh, yardstick that any engineer should hold their creation to is if people can do things with it that you never even imagined, you're a success. Right? You should be surprised and delighted by your own creation. Wow, I never imagined somebody would stick that in a cable. That should be cool. Right? So, but you'll feel better if it wasn't an accident that that happened and somebody had to pound it into there with a mallet. You'll feel a lot better if it's like, no, actually that's an emergent property of, of us making it that divisible and that customizable and having the release engineering process be something that could be targeted to so many different things. So, you know, those are examples. Uh, you know, again, just to, 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 to beat the dead horse, we have to look at which hardware reference platforms we support, call the ones that just, you know, have five examples running in the wild today and are burdening us with support and go after the ones that are actually mainstream. I can't say that strongly enough. And again, there's no reason for us to do this alone. There are lots of uh, people in the space, the uh, OS 10s, the Linuxes of the world, uh, who've, who've solved a lot of these problems already. And in fact, they're looking at us and going, what's taking you guys so long? Or you're not even relevant anymore because you don't have any of this stuff and you're not even thinking about it. And that's, that's totally unnecessary. We, we can be absolutely relevant and we are still relevant to a large extent. We just need to get even more relevant. So I will leave you with this little maxim. The future is ours if we want it. Thank you. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsttalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 247.